I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. More than 20 years after the Oslo Accords fell apart, and with the most right-wing Israeli government in history, we've never felt further from a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Why is the two-state solution so elusive? Why can't two peoples, both of whom have legitimate claims to the land, why can't they find a way to make it work? But maybe we're asking the wrong questions. Joining me today is Dr. Anat Wilf, a former member of Israel's Knesset. She was an intelligence officer in the Israel Defense Forces before earning her PhD in political science from Cambridge University. She's written seven books, including The War of Return, A Western Indulgence of the Palestinian Dream Has Obstructed the Path to Peace. Dr. Wilf, welcome to In These Times. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this interview for many, many uh, months now because I have to tell you, I'm, I'm just a great admirer of your work and your ability to articulate deep thoughts, complicated thoughts in uh, ways that people can understand. When I read your recent book with Adi Schwartz, The War of Return, it was such an eye-opener for me that I've been eager to have this chance not only to speak with you personally, but to share you with people who listen to the podcast. You've served in government. You've served in the military. You've written seven books. You're a very highly regarded academic. What do you like most? What is the real you? The politician, <laughs> the analyst, the military analyst, the intelligence analyst, or the woman of ideas? First of all, thank you for these very kind words. There's no question that the person of ideas is who I am. I take a great pleasure in reflecting and formulating ideas. I take great pleasure in communicating them clearly. It's one of the reasons I never pursued an academic career. I like to be able to reflect, to articulate, and to share my thoughts with the public sphere and just let my ideas develop in the in the interaction. I, I can appreciate that. I uh, At the end of rabbinical school, we had a series of uh, lectures. I was listening to a person who just finished a five-year PhD on the word tov in the Bible. He uh, lectured for an hour and a half, and at the end, he said, so in summary, where the Bible says tov, it means good. And where it says tov me'od, it means very good. <laughs> At that moment, I knew I would never have the patience to be a academic, a PhD. But do you feel that the politics as it's uh, played out, at least in Israel, you've been a politician, you've been in the Knesset, do you feel that they really are engaged in ideas and in values? Or is it more about the day-to-day -day disputes and the personal competitiveness? First of all, I have to say that my experience of politics has led me to develop tremendous appreciation for politicians and the work they do and the fact that I fall short of having what it takes to succeed politically, certainly over time. Success in politics requires a particular kind of intelligence that is sometimes correlated with other intelligences, but not necessarily. You could have people who are brilliant outside of politics and they can crash and burn when inside politics and vice versa. 
political intelligence is the highest form of intelligence because it deals with human nature. Again, not in a necessarily in a nice way. It deals with its manipulation, with its coercion. It requires a deep understanding of how humans work. And that's not necessarily a pretty picture. The ideas in politics, they're not as important. I mean, at the end of the day, we are all living other people's ideas. Very few of us will truly have original ideas that will shape the next century or the next millennium. At the end of the day, politics is the business of power. And the better you are at understanding it, the better a politician you will be. One of the things that so attracted me to your uh, ideas in your book is you're a liberal. You define yourself as a liberal and secular, maybe even atheist. You analyze the Israeli-Palestinian dispute from that perspective, from a liberal perspective. And if I understand you correctly, you argue that the source of the conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians is a certain irreconcilability between the Palestinian plan, the Palestinian desire, their interests as they understand it, and the Israeli interests. And the source of the Palestinian position is not two states. They're not looking and have never looked so far for a two-state solution, but rather they seek to dismantle the Jewish state of Israel. Did I state that correctly, and is that their position? Absolutely. And again, it was a difficult realization as someone who comes from the peace camp, a believer in two states, a believer still, by the way, someone who believes that Arabs and Jews, Palestinians and Israelis possess the equal right to govern themselves and their own political units in this land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, I was, like many people of my belief system, uh, euphoric in the 90s and in the belief that we were finally heading towards the peace agreement, basically, with a state of Israel minus the West Bank and Gaza and a state of Palestine in the West Bank and Gaza living side by side. And like many Israelis of the peace camp, I didn't understand why Arafat in 2000, Abu Mazen in 2008, walk away from proposals that would have allowed them to attain that. And I lived through the violence that followed. And I began to ask a question that many Israelis viscerally asked then what do the Palestinians want? We thought and we were told that they wanted a state, that they wanted an end to the occupation, that they wanted no settlement. They care about Jerusalem. And I thought, okay, but they could have had all that at least two, three times over. And I'm not going back all the way to 1947. This is in my lifetime. I experience it. And to answer that question, I began to do research. I met with many Palestinians. And what I realized is, again, to the credit of Palestinians, they've always told us what they wanted. They've always been very clear. They've been consistent. We just didn't listen to them. Or when we did listen, we didn't take them seriously. I came to call this phenomena West Plaining. Like the Palestinians say clearly what they want and Westerners explain it away. And what they said is what they still say from the river to the sea, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. One Arab Palestine, no Jewish state in any borders whatsoever. And I began to research the issue. I came across a remarkable speech by Ernst Bevin that describes the conflict. 
in February of 1947. He's the British foreign minister after World War II. At this point, there's no settlements, there's no occupation, there's no Israel, there's no refugees for that matter. All the things that we are told are the essence of the conflict don't exist. And yet he says, this is a conflict between Jews and Arabs that is irreconcilable because the Jews want a state and the Arabs want the Jews not to have a state. You can divide the land, you can divide the airspace, you can divide the resources, uh, but you can't divide or split the difference between the Jews wanting a state and the Arabs wanting the Jews not to have a state. Sometimes I just define it in one sentence. This is a conflict between Jewish Zionism and Arab anti-Zionism. That's it. That's the conflict. And by the way, this description does not necessarily mean judgment. Um, clearly, I'm a Jewish Zionist, but you might very well believe that the Arab anti-Zionist position is entirely merited, justified, moral. It doesn't change the fact that this is what the conflict is about. We had all these very brilliant people who worked on the Oslo Accords. Kind of implicit in your response is that you supported the Oslo Accords initially. Why do you think that we all missed it and that it took years of your doing further research for even you to wake up to the reality. When the book, The War of Return, came out, it was reviewed, and one of the reviews was by a Palestinian. Of course, he was angry about our recommendations in the book, but in terms of the analysis in the book and the main thesis that this is what the conflict is about, you could summarize his review of the book in the word, duh. He basically said, seriously, it took two researchers years of work to realize what we've been saying all along. And I think that the idea of West planning, sometimes I call it neocolonialism, the Arabs, the Palestinians will state clearly what their intention is. And again, to their credit, they've been consistent. They've been clear for over a century. But for a variety of reasons, we just didn't want to believe that this is really the case. I think a lot of it is wishful thinking, exhaustion. We really wanted to believe that if we just gave the West Bank and the Gaza Strip to a Palestinian state, that's it. This is the end. No more war, no more bloodshed. It was a very compelling vision. And we weren't about to let what the Palestinians said interfere with our vision of peace in the Middle East, of two states. Also, if you're going to take the Palestinians at their word, that the only proper resolution from their perspective is no Jewish state, well, that means that the work of peacemaking becomes much more difficult. I've come over the years to appreciate a big difference from what I call feeling good and doing good. And I've come to realize that a lot of people, certainly in foreign policy, but in a lot of other fields, really just care about feeling good. So it's great to kind of say we're in favor of peace and we're in favor of Palestinian rights. And that makes you feel good, but it does nothing to actually end the conflict. And once you understand what the conflict is about, 
once you give Palestinians the respect of taking them at their word, this is one of the reasons I'm very proud of the book, The War of Return, because it gives the Palestinians the respect of listening to them, at taking them at their word, of treating them as people who are capable of making choices in history, who I've realized what those choices mean and have made the choices fully aware of what they mean, that they are agents making their own history. They're not some passive bystanders. And I think once you understand that the Palestinians are serious about it, then the work of peacemaking becomes not just about getting rid of settlements or getting Israel to forgo the territories. It actually becomes about working with the Palestinians to forgo decades of anti-Zionism. In many ways, it's nothing less than the reimagining, the rethinking of what it means to be a Palestinian, away from anti-Zionism towards a constructive vision of having a Palestinian state next to the Jewish state rather than instead of it. To get to that point, it means doing a lot of things that don't feel good, such as, for example, telling the Palestinians that the War of 1948 is over. That insofar as the Arab and Palestinian goal in the War of 1948 was to prevent the establishment of a Jewish state, insofar that this was their goal, and it was, then they lost that war. And they have to accept that loss. And they have to accept that the Jewish state is here to stay. And they have to accept that they're not refugees and that they can build their future next to Israel, but not instead of it. Dr. Wolf, can I go back to your perception that the Palestinians never made any bones about saying they were not interested in a two-state solution. They wanted to dismantle the one Jewish state. Why did they embark then on the Oslo Accords? And why did they negotiate with successive Israeli governments? And why do they say that they want a Palestinian state in the entire West Bank with East Jerusalem as its capital? So as long as the Soviet Union existed, Palestinians were very clear on the goal. People forget the 90s. The 90s was this decade of American hyperpower, global cops. They will set the rules. The Palestinians sided with Saddam Hussein when he invaded Kuwait. Like They lost the support of many in the Arab world. They no longer had the Soviet Union. They no longer had Eastern Europe. They only had America. And to appeal to America, they had to at least sound conciliatory. This is the moment where they begin to emphasize the language of rights and justice, for example, which to Americans sounds benign until you realize that when Palestinians say justice, as in Students for Justice in Palestine, the only justice they consider is the correction of the injustice that is the very existence of the state of Israel. The only rights they speak about is really this idea of a right of return, which becomes the mechanism after 1948 of how to undo the Jewish state. So in that sense, they've been very consistent, but they begin to use a language that appeals to Westerners and especially the leaders of the Palestinians like Arafat and Abu Mazen, contrary to the comforting vision that many people have that the leaders are extreme and the people are moderate, it's actually pretty much always been the opposite. The leaders understanding the limitations, understanding the loss of support, 
were willing, as the price of American support, to go and negotiate. But it's no coincidence that both Arafat and Abu Mazen, they went through the process of negotiating, understanding that America was the only game in town. They could not afford otherwise. But when the time came to sign an agreement that would end the conflict, that would force them to go back to their people and say, there's no such thing as a right of return into Israel. We're now refugees. We're going to build our state next to Israel, but not instead of it. They both walked away. And Abu Mazen even clearly said to the Americans, I can't go back to millions of Palestinians and tell them that they're not going to return or settle in Israel. So you think they negotiated the Oslo Accords, they went into Camp David knowing in advance that they were going to come out of that without an agreement on a two-state solution? I don't know how in their mind they thought it was going to happen. But what is clear is this. They went to negotiate, but twice at least in 2000 and 2008, and even we know later in 2014, when the time came to sign, they walked away. And we also see it in the response of their people. When they went to negotiate, they were heavily criticized by Palestinians. But when Arafat and Abu Mazen walk away from those negotiations, there is no note of criticism. There's not even one op-ed by a Palestinian living in London that would say, are you nuts? We're on the verge of getting everything we want, a state, a capital in East Jerusalem, no settlements go back to the negotiating room and get it for us. They were subject to criticism for going to negotiate. They were subject to no criticism from their people for walking away, which means that the leaders ultimately understood what are the limitations imposed by the ethos of the people that they represented. If all of this is clear and obvious, especially in retrospect, do you think the Americans agree that... The Palestinians don't want an independent state. They want to dismantle the Jewish state. And if so, why are they still supporting a two-state solution along the lines of the Oslo Accords? What are they missing? Do they know the truth of what you're saying? And they just, you know, that's kind of the lip service that one needs to pay nowadays in terms of the political price. Or do they disagree with you? It's not that the Palestinians don't want their own state. But the question is, what is their top priority? Because people want a lot of things, right? The question is, what do we want when we're faced with a choice, when we have to choose between things? And what the Palestinians have clearly shown by their actions, by their commitment over the decades, is that if they are forced to choose between having their own state and part of the land, but it means that the Jews will have their state in the other part of the land, they again and again prefer not to have a state in the part of the land. And it's important for me to emphasize, it's a matter of priorities that becomes obvious when they're forced to choose. Now, why does the West continue to speak about two states? I don't know how many really acknowledge the depth of what the conflict is about and its essence. Because as I said, if they had to acknowledge it, they would have to do a lot of difficult and unpleasant work 
that I think most of them are just not prepared to do. And maybe they don't even believe it's possible. Ironically, the places where you hear the more interesting and firm language these days is from the Arab world. Because the Arab countries, especially the Abraham Accords countries, to the credit of the Arab world, they were never under any illusion as to what the conflict is about. They knew that it was never about the settlements or the occupation or East Jerusalem or any of these things. They knew that it was about the complete blanket Arab rejection of the Jewish right to self-determination in any part of the land. And they knew that the Palestinians derived their ability to keep rejecting all the Israeli offers by the fact that they got Arab and Muslim support for their rejectionism. So they understand that any path to peace involves getting the Palestinians to move away from decades of rejectionism and anti-Zionism. And you're more likely to hear today from Arabs to say, you know, the Palestinians need to move on. They need to understand that enough is enough. They need to understand that the Arab world is not ready to write a blank check to rejectionism anymore. And what I hear from the Arabs is something that no Westerner will dare say because in the current climate, it just feels so harsh and unpleasant. The so-called right of Palestinian return is really, in your view, it's code for we don't want a two-state solution. In your book, you go into that and you have very harsh words uh, against UNRWA and I suppose through the UN agency, the entire international world, that not only do they not see the core of the problem, they actually contribute to its irreconcilability because they support the position of the Palestinians, which forces a irreconcilable status quo. Absolutely. The subtitle of the book, The War of Return, is why Western indulgence of the Palestinian dream has obstructed the path to peace. And a lot of the book is not just about the Palestinian vision of no Jewish state. A lot of the book is about the Western indulgence of that dream, of that vision. The indulgence is through organizations, through funding, through looking away, basically, from what the Palestinian vision is. That at the end of the day, the Western countries, the United States, the European Union, that fund the organization that keeps alive for the Palestinians, unique of all the refugees of the 20th century, the organization that keeps alive for them, the vision that Israel is a temporary aberration in the region that will come to an end soon enough for them to make their triumphant return and to take back the land from the Jewish white European colonial invaders. The fact that the West supports that, the people who ultimately pay in blood for another generation of conflict is us here. We pay for it. You're referring to the UN agency that works with Palestinian refugees in, in Gaza, in Lebanon, in Syria, I guess, in the West Bank. What are they doing that is so objectionable? Okay. So this is a mechanism, and in the book we show 
how it's developed immediately after the war, not as an innocent idea, but precisely as a means of keeping the war alive and making it clear that the war's outcome, in the sense that Israel was established, maintained its independence, is unacceptable, and they have no intention of moving on from that. The Arabs, through the things that were happening at the time, uh, the beginning of the Cold War, the power of oil, the support of the Islamic world, were able to force the West to do something that it didn't do for any other refugees at the time, which is to keep alive the idea that the war is still an open case, to not settle or resettle the refugees, and to just keep the whole issue ongoing. And in the book, we describe it as a form of protection, as a form of bribery. And the West has been complicit in it ever since. I do want to say something important. The actual problem of the refugees is very small in the sense that most Palestinians today are not refugees by any stretch of the imagination. The Palestinians claim eight, nine million refugees. UNRWA lists 5.8 million. Most of them are either citizens of Jordan, born in Jordan, middle class, wealthy. They don't live in refugee camps, but they're still registered as refugees. But they're not refugees by any actual sense of the word. The other large groups live in the West Bank and Gaza. So whatever you think about a two-state solution, they already live in Palestine. They were born there. A 30-year-old lawyer living in Ramallah, middle class, he's not a refugee from Palestine, and yet he's registered as such. Many of them have by now left places like Lebanon and Syria, they're citizens of Europe, they're citizens of America. My favorite refugee is the Playboy American citizen, multimillionaire, father of supermodels Gigi and Bella Hadid. He's not what people think of when they think of as a refugee, and yet he's still registered as one. The actual problem of refugees It's probably several tens of thousands of people, at most 200,000 people, if you include all the descendants who live stateless in Lebanon and Syria and have not acquired any other citizenship. So the actual problem of Palestinians who need settlement and statehood is very small outside the West Bank and Gaza. But the vision of what it means to be a refugee That's huge. I mean, in many ways, you could argue that to be a refugee is the definition of what it means to be a Palestinian. So one more question about the Israeli-Palestinian issue. You're painting it one and the same rather depressing picture, but with some glimmers of hope. For the first 30 years of Israel's existence, there were no Arab countries that recognized it. Since 1978, now Israel has a peace accord with Egypt and Jordan and, as you say, the Abraham Accords. So perhaps we're making progress. Do you agree in looking at the next generation or two, say by the year 2050 or 2060 or by Israel's even 100th anniversary in 25 years, will this issue be resolved? Will we still be speaking lip service of two-state solution and nothing will have changed. I do agree that there's a lot of hope coming from the region itself. Sometimes I 
defined the conflict as a century-long battle of mutual exhaustion, where the Arab world is trying to exhaust the Jews into forgoing their desire to have a state, and the Jews are trying to exhaust the Arab world into basically accepting that we are here to stay. The reason, of course, that the conflict still rages on is that both sides see enough signs that they're exhausting the other side. But yes, I would very much like to believe that the Arab world is realizing that decades of anti-Zionism have not served it well, not least of it that it led them to basically expel and kick out their Jewish population. The decades of anti-Zionism were just a complete waste of time because at the end of the day, anti-Zionism is an ideology of resentment, of failure. I can't think of anyone who's adopted anti-Zionism as an organizing idea and somehow that led to their thriving over time. So I don't think it's so a coincidence that the most successful countries are the ones that are ditching anti-Zionism and developing an alternative vision of Arab identity and Muslim identity that embraces the Jewish state. In that sense, I see hope. These days, more of my hope comes from the Arab and Muslim world than it does from the West. Talking about the West, you've spent a lot of time on American campuses. Do you have any thoughts about whether anti-Zionism, especially as it's expressed in the younger generations and progressive circles and on campus, do you think that that inevitably leads to anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish sentiments? The answer is yes. The What I've decided to do, you know, a lot of people have split hairs, including me, on the question of whether anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, and then you always end up in a discussion about Satmar Jews and their theological opposition to Zionism, which is really not what we're concerned about. So I decided to just examine the issue in practice. What happens to societies when anti-Zionism becomes a key issue, an organizing principle, as it did in the Arab world in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, as it did in the Soviet Union, beginning in the 50s and 60s, as it did in Germany. And here the verdict is clear. There's no splitting hairs. Whenever the full arc of anti-Zionism is allowed to play out, the dynamic is such that the environment turns hostile to Jewish life, and within a few short years, no Jews are left. And it's no coincidence that Jews in Britain, in fighting Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party and his obsession with anti-Zionism, that made the entire Labour Party a hostile environment to Jews, they realized that they were defending Jewish life in the UK. It was not about Israel. They realized that if Jeremy Corbyn would be prime minister and his obsession with anti-Zionism, they would, there would be danger to the possibility of a thriving Jewish life in Britain. So when Jews don't stand up, sometimes they can't, as it was in the Arab world, as it was in the Soviet Union, then at the end of the day, it's very clear that anti-Zionism is used as the respectable mask to go after Jews. Even when anti-Zionists genuinely proclaim that it's not about Jews and they don't have anything against Jews, in practice, the outcome is an environment hostile to Jewish life. And one of the ways it happens is that even though the opening position is always, this is about Zionism, this is not about Jews, we love Jews, Jews are great. What happens is that since anti-Zionism doesn't care about facts, then the next step is to label Jews as collaborationists with Zionism. And then Jews are branded as Zionists, 
even though they're not. I mean, Jews across the Arab world, many of them just wanted to be loyal Moroccans and Iraqis, but they were still blamed for collaboration with Zionism. The Soviet Union, whenever they wanted to go after any Jewish person, they just said, okay, that person is a Zionist. And that was it. That person was gone. So it becomes the mechanism by which you label Jews as traitors. Then that's it. Then you can act against them. So this is why it ends up in practice being an assault on Jewish life. Over the years, I really tried to figure out why I feel so differently about the white supremacist kind of anti-Semitism and the left-wing progressive anti-Zionism. And recently I realized that white supremacist right-wing anti-Semitism is clearly the outside enemy. It's like crime. You know, every one of us knows that we could be the victims of crime, but most of us don't hang out with criminals and we take precautions against crime. And yes, sometimes it's lethal, sometimes we get hurt, but we know that it's the outside enemy against which we need to protect ourselves. Anti-Zionism is much more akin to domestic violence. It attacks you in the place that you're supposed to feel safe and secure and at home. And anti-Zionism is the respectable mask that allows to assault Jews in the places that were traditionally their homes, that they built universities and campuses and academia and social justice circles and journalism. A lot of the places that Jews are indeed disproportionately represented, that they've come to view as their homes, those are the places where anti-Zionism goes after them. So I'd like to ask you one more uh, question about the American-Israeli relationship, American-Jewish relationship. Most American Jews, as you know, define themselves as liberal. Overwhelmingly, American Jewry is liberal. And there's quite widespread and deep concern about the new Israeli government. Are you concerned about the Israeli government? I am concerned. I'm definitely concerned for a lot of things that have to do uh, domestically, especially in anything that has to do with feminism, with secularism, certainly. Where to find the place between, let's say, a healthy level of concern that leads you to a healthy level of fighting back for the values that you believe in without the apocalyptic visions that sometimes lead to actions that you can't come back from. My camp is certainly, by and large, not represented by this government on almost any issue. I favor the, the liberal values and secularism of my camp, but I also fear that some of the apocalyptic rhetoric in itself becomes a source of danger. I recognize that sometimes apocalyptic rhetoric is important for mobilization. The question is, when does it go too far that you create rifts, you create hysteria? People are saying, you know, we want to leave Israel. Like people feel that they need to escape tomorrow morning. These things have real life repercussions. And in that sense, I wonder, is it possible to find a balance of fighting for your values without demonizing the other side and making it into the kind of the end of the world as we know it. 
Given that all democracies are uh, fragile, they constantly need attention. Within that context, you believe that Israeli democracy is still strong and vibrant and vital? Oh, we certainly underestimate how strong and vital Israeli democracy is. How one of the facts that sometimes people are surprised by is that Israel is one of the world's oldest democracies. People think that Israel is a young country. And then I remind people that Eastern Europe, most of Asia, Africa, Latin America, Southern Europe were not democracies until fairly recently. So we're part of a small club and our tradition of democracy goes back all the way to the Zionist Congress and its institutions. And you can even go back to the Jewish institutions of self-communal governance. I think all democracies today are in danger from forces that have to do with technology much more than this or that person. Those are issues that I'm more concerned about in terms of their danger to the health of societies and democracy. But Israeli democracy is generally one of the stronger democracies facing those challenges. So on that very optimistic note, I want to thank you very much and commend you for your very brilliant ideas. Thank you so much. It's most kind. This was such an important discussion. For me, listening to Dr. Wilf is like having a veil lifted or cataracts removed from my eyes. All of a sudden, you see clearly what was blurry and cloudy before. If you want to read one book that comprehensively explains the essence of the Israel-Palestinian struggle, at least from the perspective of liberal Israelis and Jews, pick up The War of Return. The question that has gnawed at me for over 20 years is the very question that Einat raised in our discussion and was the central tension of her book. Why did the Palestinians reject, repeatedly, a two-state solution? Why did they walk away from what we assumed they wanted? A Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza Strip in most of the territory. The remaining territory granted to them through land swaps from within Israel proper and with East Jerusalem as their capital. Why didn't they accept this? There would be no Israeli settlements in the Palestinian state. All Palestinian refugees would be free to live in the newly created state of Palestine. The Hundred Year War would have ended and both Israelis and Palestinians could have gotten on with their lives, investing their prodigious resources and energies on constructive rather than destructive aims. I was so committed to this vision and so sure that it would materialize that during the 13 days that Yasser Arafat, Ehud Barak, and Bill Clinton were negotiating at Camp David in the year 2000, I was feverishly preparing our reform movement's campaign to support the agreement. I was the senior executive of our movement's Israel and Zionist arm, Artsa. We knew that there would be opposition from right-wing Israelis and their counterparts in the American Jewish community. We were determined to prevail. I'd prepared press releases, literature, and a grassroots campaign in our 900 reform synagogues across North America. Throughout the 90s, I continuously worked for peace. I met with Prime Minister Rabin, who encouraged me to visit Jordan with a large group of rabbis as preparation for the Israel-Jordan peace agreement. Upon our return from Jordan, Rabin spent an hour with our group thanking us and describing the Oslo Accords. I arranged meetings for reform leaders and even youth groups. With Palestinian representatives in New York, I encouraged hundreds of reform rabbis to travel with me to the West Bank and meet Palestinians who were previously active in the armed struggle against Israel. I even took a large group of rabbis with me into Gaza. 
where we met with representatives of Hamas. We were so dazzled by the prospects of peace and so determined to see it through to the end that it never dawned on us that Camp David would end in failure. We were stunned that the leader of the Palestinians, the Israeli prime minister, and the American president could spend two weeks together and walk out without an agreement. And not only that, but within two months, the Palestinians launched the most vicious terrorist campaign that maimed and murdered thousands of Israeli civilians wherever they congregated, in restaurants, cafes, shopping malls, schools, buses, hotels, hospitals. On one of my visits to Israel during that time, I met a 20-something Ethiopian hospital security guard who received the Medal of Valor from the Israel Defense Forces for his extraordinary act of courage. At 7 a.m. one morning, he noticed what looked like an ultra-Orthodox Jew who was wearing a backpack. The security guard felt a powerful surge of danger. He told me that he immediately cocked his rifle, but hesitated firing for one brief second because he wasn't 100% sure and there were people around and he was in front of the hospital. And that was the second that the terrorist, who had disguised himself as a Haredi Jew, exploded his backpack. The young man spent two weeks in a coma and five months in rehab. When he woke up, his commander told him what happened. There was another terrorist working with the first one who revealed in interrogation that their intention was to go into the hospital and to explode themselves in the baby ward for newborns. This was the level of savagery and depravity that the Palestinian leadership unleashed. And ever since, this question, why, has burned inside of me. I'm aware of all the revisionist claims that the Palestinians were never offered what American and Israeli leaders said they offered, or that they didn't get this or that demand. It was all minor, trivial, in comparison to the prize of finally ending the conflict. And what happened to me happened to most Jewish liberals in Israel and worldwide. We were disoriented and, frankly, felt betrayed. We felt duped. It was not only that the Palestinians walked away. It was that they buried the opportunity for peace with wanton violence, murder, and mayhem. And in so doing, they buried the Israeli and American peace camp that is still, essentially, comatose. I was taught a lesson that I'll never forget. We can never be so enraptured to theories and conceptions so as to be blind to reality. We simply didn't want to countenance that there might be deeper reasons than territorial disputes keeping the Israeli-Palestinian war alive. We refused to listen to the Palestinians themselves. All of Einat's years-long scholarly research led to a simple conclusion that was so obvious to some people that they teased her about it. The Jews want a state, and the Palestinians want the Jews to not have a state. This is the essence of the conflict. The basic reason that Oslo failed, in my opinion and Dr. Wilf's opinion, and in the opinion of most Israelis and Jews, even those of us who are liberals, is that one side, the Palestinian side, believes that the other side has no right to sovereignty, self-determination, and statehood. And when it came time to choose between a Palestinian state alongside a Jewish state, or continuing to press for no Jewish state, they chose the latter. If this analysis is right, then, indeed, the Israeli-Palestinian dispute is not currently resolvable. 
Jewish Zionism and Palestinian anti-Zionism are irreconcilable. One side has to lose. Either the Israelis lose their state, or the Palestinians relinquish their rejection of Israeli statehood. This state of affairs saddens and worries me intensely. First, because I have not changed my mind that the only viable solution to the Israeli-Palestinian dispute is a two-state agreement. As long as this conflict simmers, the more dangerous it is for Israel, the Palestinians, and the world. And second, the moral dilemmas resulting from this ongoing struggle will continue to tear apart the Jewish soul and the Jewish people. I take heart from the glimmers of optimism may not expressed. Wholesale rejection and demonization of Israel is diminishing in, of all places, the Middle East itself. The Arab world never had any illusions what this conflict was really about. And some Arab states have now said, enough, we're moving on. They now realize that anti-Zionism is a philosophy of failure and resentment and a waste of national resources. Hopefully, momentum will continue to build in this direction. I continue to believe that sooner or later, the breakthrough will arrive. There is no other alternative. Until next time, this is In These Times. Thank you.